but now a lot of these different companies are thinking about AI in the sense of transparency, safety, explainability. Can I explain actually why this AI did this? Because that's going to help combat things like bias. Welcome to the Open at Intel podcast, where we're all about open source, from software to security to innovation and beyond. I'm your host, Catherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist at Intel bringing you leading-edge, free-ranging conversations from some of the best minds in the open-source community. Let's get into it. While at All Things Open, I spoke with open-source community leader Christine Abernathy about her work in the field of security, as well as the specific concerns and risks related to the intersection of security and AI. We also touched on the significance of being involved in open-source foundations and collaborative environments to stay informed about industry trends and contribute back to the community. Join us as we explore. First, thank you so much, Christine, for joining me. We've worked together in OpenSSF groups, but this is our first time meeting in person, and I'm really excited because you do some inspiring work as somebody who observes your work from a distance a bit. So I'm very excited about Flattered. this. <laughs> and, and, you know, we are here at All Things Open. Yes. You gave a talk about something that's incredibly timely, which is intersection of security and AI. Yes. Learning. Yes. And I, I, first, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us about the type of work you do. And then tell us a little bit about that talk, which I, I'll link to in oh, our okay. description. Um, so... Uh, Again, thank you for having me here and uh, Christine Abernathy here. Currently, I am at F5, and F5 is a company that is focused on making sure that apps and APIs are delivered in a secure, optimized fashion. So um, I've been a part of the Open Source Security Foundation because they actually intersect with a lot of that work. And as I joined the Open Source Security Foundation, there was a working group related to AI ML, which I jumped into because as everyone from the week <laughs> yes. after ChatGPT launched, I was just like talking about this thing because I could kind of see the possibilities. And then in addition to that, I've had some exposure to uh, AI ML in the past, not so much, but I've always been like a lifelong learner. So between the fact of just being interested in AI ML because it's not new, but it was like almost like a new renewed interest in addition to just also being interested in security because that's what F5 is based on and that's what I've been doing in part of the OpenSSF. I felt like this would be like a good talk to give. So full disclaimer, first thing I did when I was doing the talk proposal Let's go to ChatGPT, say, I want to do a talk on AI and security, give me some ideas. And it gave me a nice summary, tweaked it a little bit, made it my own, and then the talk was accepted at All Things Open. So I was quite excited that that, got, uh, that, that was done. And now I was like, oh, now I have to learn more to give this talk. <laughs> <laughs> Which was actually not a bad thing because ever since, again, I was fascinated with ChatGPT. I've gone to a couple of AI conferences. I've been like keeping up with the news all the time. And it's like so fast paced that it was like a dizzying, dizzying thing. But I'm like, you know what? At the end of whatever time the talk comes up, I'm going to have the opportunity to at least share what I know. I am not an expert, but I think everyone has something to share, even if you just know something else somebody didn't know just because they weren't paying attention to social media last week and something popped up. So that's kind of like what my interest is, sharing what I know, not as the expert, as, but just as somebody who could just share some of the news. I love that approach. That's a great perspective. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, people, people, when you get, you get so embedded in your own area, whatever that may be, yeah. you start to forget that not everybody, you, you make assumptions. Not everybody knows what you know. Yeah. Even yeah. you don't have to be the, the expert in a field to be qualified to give a talk. Yeah. Um, so, True. so going back to the subject of your talk, I wonder, what are some specific concerns that you that you're highlighting, yeah. or you have identified that are security concerns specific to AI and ML? Yeah. Well, yeah. the interesting thing is I kind of like delved into the, the basics, like through the openness itself, I've met a lot of people who are experts in the security field. And then also through just talking to some uh, folks like my sister, she was also um, an expert in security. I started to learn about these things kind of like adversarial attacks. Mm -hmm. And I'm always somebody who likes to take concepts and bring them back to sort of like what is the real world or what do I know? So some of the things that I've seen that are common, I like to look also for commonalities. So some of the things that I've seen that are common in regular secure development, I've seen those sort of play out in AI. So when people are thinking about secure code development and security issues, it's, it could be things like, who has access to your code while you're writing the code that could actually be bringing in malicious things in the code? So at the point where it's actually being run, they could take advantage of that. So in a sense, you know, somebody could actually put in or submit code, let's just say in, in the context of an open source project, somebody out there submits code for you to incorporate into your project. It might be malicious code. It might inject something that's not good. Maybe you're not doing a code review. So you're not actually going in and saying, I don't think this is right. So there are things within source code management that says that you should probably, if somebody puts in a pull request via GitHub, have somebody review the code, or if you have certain tests that you should be running continuously to make sure that the code is secure, go ahead and do that. So there's these best practices around how you actually do secure code. So taking that to the point of view of LLMs and say an example of a chat applications, in the beginning, if you're naive, you're like super pumped. Maybe you're naive from the point of view as the person who's actually created this chat system. Uh, you could be saying, oh, everyone's going to put like just the nicest thing inside of my chat application. Nobody's going to ever want to do anything bad. But as sort of has been seen in some of the exploits over time, most notably, I think in 2016, uh, Microsoft had released this chat application to the world. And I talk about this in my talk. It was called Microsoft Tay. And so Microsoft Tay was supposed to be a nice, friendly bot on Twitter to just help people. And as I like to say, the very nice internet community, as they always are, <laughs> uh, decided that within a day, they were going to do their best to see what they could make this chatbot do. Needless to say, within a day, Microsoft actually had to take down this bot because people had, this bot was being trained continuously as user input was being brought in. So the, what the folks were doing is that they were making it say very harmful and very bad things. So taking that same concept further, if you're within say like a chat uh, application like ChatGPT, within a very short amount of time, usually when uh, LLMs are trained, uh, they might be given some guidance, like you are a nice friendly bot and you are going to help people. Sure. And that's sort of like behind the scenes, that's what's called like a, a system prompt or a, maybe sometimes called a meta prompt. And then the user enters what is their question or whatever it is that they need help with. 
those two kind of come together and then are fed after some other things go in into the actual large language model, which is usually essentially doing like a completion. What could go wrong is somebody could either say, I'm going to add something a little extra that's going to sort of trick this model so that it's not doing what it's supposed to be. So instead of saying, you are a friendly chat model, it might add something else like, forget everything I just told you. Uh, that might be like something they actually put in the user prompt. This is very simplistic, but it's like a form of trying to add, in this case, malicious code. But okay, in this yeah. sense, you're adding content, malicious yeah. input so yeah. that you can actually trick the LLM into acting out of what they call alignment because usually these LLM models are right. aligned. Yeah. Beyond the guardrails. Stay within your lane, right? but people are trying to make it veer away from their lane and do bad things. Sometimes it's just for fun and game and trying to like game the system, but it could definitely potentially cause harm, especially if a lot of this then kind of makes its way back into maybe where the LLM is trained. So that's one of those things. So any kind of like maliciousness, there's some things that you should just extend in any new system that is being developed. Just think like a bad actor, think like an adversary and see what can they do to prevent this. And what I learned as I was going through this is whether it's not in basic machine learning, where people are trying to figure out how people can trick this model that's been trained, same thing's going to happen within LLMs. And I've, what I've also learned is that it's almost like a, a game. Like every time they sort of patch this, then it becomes a game again. How can I? Uh, and so the, another thing that I've learned over the past few years in security is that it's not something that's ever done. <laughs> security <laughs> is never done because right, people are creative mean? and they're going to find ways to try to get past the system that you've built. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a universal, right? In your discovery and in your research, have you found any methods for mitigating these kind yeah. of risks that you could share? Yeah. So usually when um, there's different ways that you can attack, I'm going to go down to the model, and the model is actually part of a whole system, but a model can actually be attacked while it's being trained. So when a machine model is being trained, it's definitely given a lot of data. And doing this data, it's going to learn over time, improve its experience, and then actually apply this to new data that it hasn't seen before. So during that, somebody could actually do something called data poisoning, which mm -hmm. I refer to. So the way that you would mitigate that is obviously to sanitize your data. And there's some basic things around like access control. Who has actually have access to your model to train it? Are you making it available so people could train it continuously? An example of the, say, Microsoft Tay, uh, where are you just taking the data as is and assuming it's good? So how are you cleaning the data? Are you validating your data? So that's during the model training. That's sort of like things that could go wrong, and that's the mitigation strategy. After the model has been deployed, there are many things that people could do. They could actually try to replicate the model. And so, you know, a model usually is in general for something called supervised learning. You give it lots of labeled data, and then you try to get what should be the right output, and you sort of fine-tune it. What people could actually do is if your model is accessible they, through, say, an API, they can start asking your model lots and lots of questions. What they're trying to do is mimic that sort of training and actually replicate your model. Once they've replicated your model, they could take it offline and then start to ask it a lot of different questions. And with this sort of like copy of the model, they can then use their, they could try to like fake it and then use some of the inputs to see how they can bypass and make it do what it wasn't supposed to do. Once they've got sort of like that, magic sort of like input, they could then go back to the original sort of target model 
and then try to get it to, again, do the wrong thing. So an example which I found is some folks actually took a model that was supposed to, supposed to do spam detection, made a copy of that model, found a way to get past that spam classifier, and then took that and went back to the original one and then tried to attack it that way. So it's sort of getting it to misclassify. So the way that you could say mitigate for that is that you could potentially just go in and say, I'm going to make it slightly harder for them to actually replicate my model. And there's different ways that you can do it by maybe just add something called, uh, um, I forget the name, but uh, it was something related to just changing the output slightly in such a way that it's very hard to kind of make that correlation between the input ah, and the output. Sure. Another thing is just like the good old monitoring. Who is making all these calls? Because you have to actually send it a lot of inputs requests to just get at these outputs. Are you getting a lot of people just sending you lots of queries to your model? Is it just seems like something funny is going on? It's the same thing in the real world when somebody's going like trying to rob a bank. Are people just coming out and sort of checking out your bank a lot? Are you seeing right. a lot of unusual activity? Yeah, yeah, unusual activity. So limiting model access is one way that you can actually sort of mitigate for that particular scenario. So I've talked about when you are actually before a model is, during model training, I talked about data poisoning. Uh, during um, uh, after the model is trained, I just talked about one called replicating. But then after the model has been deployed and out there, people could actually try to confuse the model. They could actually say, and that's the example I told you about called prompt injection. So prompt injection is where they're trying to just trick the model out of alignment. And so the way that they've been trying to do is mitigate that is called, you could call it adversarial training. So adversarial training could be like, what are sort of like the prompts that I've seen that are sort of like trying to trick us? And then you go and train your model to recognize that and not do what it is that, you, that they want you to do. And adversarial training is a, is a form. And it's also like a whack-a-mole type of thing where you're trying to do it and they're trying to find a way around it. I don't think it's something that's been completely solved because people are always coming with jailbreaks and trying to do all of these different sort of like tricks. But again, with prompt injection, it's just a moving target. You just have to stay on top of it, uh, keep up with the research and what people are trying to do. A lot of academic research go into ways to sort of start prompt injection, as many of them also figure out ways that they can actually prevent it. Another thing that people are talking is like this sort of like dual LLM architecture in the context of LLMs, where you have one model that basically handles sort of untrusted input, and then another model that can actually execute things that the model was trying to do. And here's the problem that could happen in this other, thing, in this other scenario. I, you know, uh, ChatGPT at some point was just like question and answer. And then they added this ability to say plugins, where you could go and ask a question and maybe you wanted to uh, do travel somewhere so that it could like plug into mm. a site that goes in and does, I don't know, help you book travel. Right. Or something that sends you email. So it's almost like extending the LLM so that it could have extra functionality. Within open source, there is this library called Langchain. And Langchain sort of mimics that thing where you could have an LLM and then it could be like help you orchestrate and extend the functionality. For example, it could then go out and send an email. So if somebody says, and so it could like also automatically do certain things. So I think that's one of the things where if you had one LLM that's just taking in the input, untrusted input, then you have a trusted boundary where the other LLM is then interacting with that other piece of it and doing things that would not be, at that point, it's sort of like trusted. So you just kind of keep them apart where you're, tr you're, you're treating one LLM as a trusted user and you're treating another LLM as it can actually do the hard stuff. And then the other thing that they can do in these scenarios, make sure there's a human in the middle. For example, 
don't just send an email. If this application is supposed to send an email and can do something nefarious, have somebody actually go in and say, I actually do want to send that email. So human in the loop is another way where you can actually have somebody be able to take a look at things and say, um, yeah, anything that is privileged, make sure that a human in a loop is the person who is actually performing that privileged operation. So almost like double checking that this is the right thing that's happening. So those are different ways. Yeah, that's fantastic. You've mm-hmm. clearly done a tr- tremendous amount of research since you, you entered that prompt into ChatGPT. <laughs> I will put that out there. Yeah, yeah. Is there, this is something that I wonder sometimes, is there a conversation to be had that is a bit adjacent to this conversation about the way end users interact with things like ChatGPT and other, other generative AI mm. apps or... or mm-hmm. AI powers so much of the world around us today yeah. in ways that... It's not new. ChatGPT has is, is sort of taken over the headlines, but, but there have been chat-based assistants that run using AI. Voice recognition, uh, applications of voice recognition in security cameras and all of these things, visual computing. Is there a conversation to be had about protecting privacy of the end users that is somewhat related it to is. keeping the data model secure? It's something that I, is always in the back of my mind as yeah. a, a human, as a user of technology, I, I, you know, I want my photos, I want my life, my data protected yes. in some cases. And, yeah. and sometimes I feel like that's not necessarily within my control anymore. Yeah, so I wondered yeah. if you had any thoughts about how the larger conversation about protecting the security of, da- of data models applies to end users. Yeah, and that's a really good question and a point because, as I said, some of these security holes, people are just going to try to uh, game the system or just like all these attacks. So towards the end of the talk, I said, okay, you know what? Sometimes security or whatever is not going to potentially solve the problem because I didn't even mention, but one of the attacks, especially with the model after it's been deployed, could be trying to recreate some of that training data and some of that training data could be actually private information. So I talked about towards the end of my talk that security might not be enough. That's where government regulation or regulation could play a role because as a government part of what you're supposed to be doing is protecting your citizens and part of that protection could be a form of like data privacy. So you've seen places like uh, the European Union, they have an AI act that's making its rounds with the goal of protection and, and then EU in general with the, uh, the GDPR have been like focused on data privacy but now a lot of these different companies are thinking about AI in the sense of transparency, uh, safety, explainability. Can I explain actually why this AI did this? Because that's going to help combat things like bias. So beyond like the, the, I think this is where regulation could step in, but it's like, it's so fast moving even for them that they're trying to keep up. They want to protect their citizens as fast as possible so that they're not taking advantage of. And some of that is training. So hopefully government reg- regulation in whichever way there needs to be and there will be some form of regulation just to combat that data privacy uh, issues that might be. So I sometimes think about security and privacy hand in hand because yes. if somebody actually compromises security, usually they're trying to do it to compromise your privacy or get at your data and then use that again to cause you either a harm sometimes or financial, just, loss. Or financial loss or there's all different kinds of impact. So it's going to be like a combination of like, how are you going to like, stop the person from actually committing that? Is there going to be a, uh, is there going to be some damages or something that could stop them from slowing that? It doesn't mean that they're going to stop because as I read somewhere, like security is almost like the fourth biggest industry or like uh, what you call it. There was a word for it. They said that it's like if you were to call it an industry uh, or, 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 a, or a country, it would be like right. the, f- 
the fourth, fourth largest, largest economy. economy. Yeah. You've seen that. You've heard mm-hmm. that. I have. Yeah. So it's like you're not really going to stop this from happening, but at least maybe it becomes part of educating people. It also becomes maybe like fines can be levied. The legislature has to play a role in it. But we also have to, another thing that could help with privacy beyond education is some of the researchers, the academia and all, they do a lot of research on what could go wrong. But the industry needs to work with them hand in hand so that you're marrying the right kind of research with what potentially the industry should be focusing on to protect um, these folks. Because a lot of esoteric research could go on, uh, but like, which one should we be paying attention? If, if I'm building a system, which one should I look at so that we can work together and actually solve this and work hand in hand? So I think that might be like another interesting thing. But education be really key, uh, even just like password. Everyone should know you should have a strong password. And I know like uh, when my mom was doing a password, that actually gives her the most heartburn and heartache because there's too many passwords changed. She's overwhelmed. There are people in the community. Uh, I also think that another thing that's forgotten is who in the community are most successful or who don't even actually have the means to defend themselves because they either don't have the experience or the knowledge or they just don't know. And those are like the ones that you should be protecting, but who's protecting them? So yeah. well, I, think, I think that you are. And I <laughs> hope that people, people like you and people like us, for that matter, yeah. you know, are kind of stepping up to the plate. Because like, like you say, it's the most vulnerable or the yeah. people with the, less, or the least empowered to protect themselves. Yes. The least, and, and frequently with the least voice, the least influence on right. uh, trends in the security community. Um, I, we're almost out of time, wow. but as we wrap up, I know this has been fantastic. I would yeah. love to have a follow-up. But as we wrap up, I thought I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the uh, about how your work in foundations, something like the OpenSSF, again, we, should, we have that in common, how that kind of plays into your work. Why, why, do you, why is it valuable to put your time there? Yeah, like, like I said, in the beginning when I joined F5, security wasn't in my background. So joining things like the OpenSSF was supposed to kind of like help me both just educate me on what the industry was thinking about and where it was going in the trends. Because part of my role is to just look out, be in the community, see where we can actually contribute, but not only contribute, but what can we learn from the community. Trends around uh, open source security, uh, what are people thinking about, are things that are going to affect us one way or the other. So being in a foundation, in a collaborative environment, which open source generally is, and I found that to be true, is the best way to be plugged in. Not just to contribute, uh, but also to learn. And I'm always like a big learner. The F5 is a big learner. So I think that's one way that we can actually play a role. And so that was part of the reasons why uh, OpenSSF and Linux Foundation and even just coming to these conferences and interacting yeah. with people is the best way to know what's going on in the ground. Well, I 100% agree. And yeah. thank you for having this conversation with me. Thank you. Because by extension, I learn, you know, I learn what you're, what you're concerned about. And, we, you know, we continue the conversation. And I think hopefully all roads lead to a, greater, a more secure digital world, right? Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> all right. You've been listening to Open at Intel. Be sure to check out more from the Open at Intel podcast at open.intel.com slash podcast and at Open at Intel on Twitter. We hope you join us again next time to geek out about open source.